Okay, we've been going through the book of James, uh, and today we're in James chapter 4. And uh, t- today, if you want a title, my title is How to Quit Playing God. We often do this. One day, late in a, in a mental asylum, uh, one guy, it was pitch black, everyone was sleeping, and one guy in the middle of the night cried out, I am Napoleon. There was silence. And then someone shouted, in the darkness. How'd you know? And the first man replied, God told me. And then from another room, a voice came, No, I didn't. (laughs) How to quit playing God. We do this, and to be honest, this has been one of the problems in humanity from the very beginning. Instead of letting God be God, we've played God. We've taken charge. And we've done a great job of messing things up. And in James chapter 4, he gives us three ways that we typically play God. And three ways that we can reverse that negative condition. Um, Okay, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason, the spirit that he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you become, when you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you sit on judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city and spend a year there and carry out business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. As it is, you boast and brag and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows what he ought to do and does not do it sins. Okay, three ways we play God. Way number one is we try to get things our way. Not God's way, but we act as God and try and make it happen for us, our way. Verses one to ten. Let's start in verses one and two. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from the desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You're trying to play God by trying to get what you want your way. You know, there are many examples in history about this, both secular history and Bible history. I mean, right back to our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, we see this was their issue. Way back in Genesis, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, 5, and 6, it says, this is what Satan said to Eve, For God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's, knowing the difference, knowing good and evil. Then the woman said, sorry, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, right? She tried to get something her way. She saw what she wanted. She wanted to be like God's. She wanted to have knowledge and she went for it, but in her own humanistic agenda, And we know the devastation that caused. Another example of people trying to play God is David. Now, David was a great king. He did many great things. He did many great things that we could look on and say, it's amazing. 
But he'd made two major blunders in the middle of his rule. And it's all around this lady, Bathsheba. She was hot, and she was his neighbor. And she had a tendency to bathe naked outside his bedroom window. And this tormented him, right? Did his nothing. And one day he decided, I'm the king, I can do what I want. And he got her, and he slept with her, even though she was a married woman. And as a result, she fell pregnant, and then David took matters into his own hands. He acted like God. He acted like God in taking her to himself for, for the start. And then secondly, he acted like God by killing her husband, getting him out of the picture so he could have her to himself. He, I mean, it's incredible the, the, the depth that this great man went to. And the incredible thing is that God restored that man, and even though he made such a huge blunder, he ended up good in the end. So that's good news for some of you. In fact, it's good news for all of us, because we blunder, but God is a God who can turn it around and bring us out on top, even with that extremity of blunder. David acted like gods. He wanted that girl for himself, and he killed the husbands. He played gods, and it ruined everything. Secular history gives us Adolf Hitler. There's a man, wanted power, wanted dominion. He went about it his own way. He went about it in such an ungodly, evil way. Here's a quote from Adolf Hitler. It's not in your Bible. It must be thoroughly understood that the lost land will never be won back by solemn appeals to God, nor by hoping in the League of Nations, but only by the force of arms. In other words, don't pray to God. Don't try and negotiate your way around this. Fight for what you want. He tried to play God, and it ruins millions upon millions of people's lives in his own country and overseas. Satan himself, this was his downfall. Satan himself, his downfall was he wanted to play God. And we find a description of, we find a description of Satan's fall in Isaiah chapter 14, 12 to 15. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, you son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, this is what Satan said in his heart before his fall, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God's. I will sit in thrones in the mount of the assembly and on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you will be brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Satan himself, as an angel, part of God's army of angels, Satan himself got proud. Pride was found in his heart. He desired the very throne of God. He desired the worship that God received. He desired the power and the authority and the accolade that God alone deserved. He desired it. And that was, the, that was the fall of Satan, which has resulted in devastation on the earth. When we play gods, we're in a dangerous place. When we play gods, it will bring misery in countries and families and businesses and in churches. And James gives us keys about how we can overcome this. You see, our reason, we have pretty much negative motives and corrupt reasons from the word go. We want stuff for the wrong reasons. James 4.3 says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, the Greek word pleasures there is hedonai, which means sensual desire or lust, delight. It's the word that we get the word hedonism from or hedonistic. We get this word from there. It's all about pleasures and desires and wanting with a wrong motive. So some of you or some of us want money, but we don't want money because we want to give it away and help others and empower the world. We want money because we want. Or, or some of you guys, you want a girlfriend. It's not because you want to be a great husband and build a great family. It's because you want sex. Don't look so innocent. Some of you girls, you want married, not because uh, you want to be a phenomenal wife and build a great home, and because you want the identity of being married and you want the security that comes from husbands. Which are legitimate needs, but it's become your main agenda. We see people in businesses wanting promotion, 
Not because they want to be great bosses and look after their employees well and because they really believe in the business, but simply for egotistical reasons. They want the, they want the position. They want to be seen. So we're, we're, we're wanting stuff. And sometimes the stuff we want isn't actually bad stuff. It's just that the motive that we want it is wrong. James goes on in verse 4 and 5 and says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God's? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God's. Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit he's caused to live in us envies intensely? The word friendship in the Greek language there is philia, which means fondness. It's like Gollum, my precious. You love the world. You love it. It's become your precious. It's fondness. You, you love the world. Now, what does it mean to love the world? Does it mean, okay, I can't love the world, I'm a Christian. That means I'm going to isolate myself from all my non-Christian buddies. That means, I, I, you know, for some people, avoiding worldliness means we don't have televisions, we're Christians, all right? Or we, we kind of say we can't wear jeans, we're Christians. You laugh, but a couple of generations or a generation ago, that was common in churches. I, I couldn't play football on Sunday because we're Christians. And I think Jesus would be playing football on a Sunday. This was kind of the, the worldliness that we thought this is worldliness. Or, uh, you know, you've got to dress in a certain way or you, you can't do certain practices. And it's, it's kind of religious, legalistic legislation we put down to avoid this thing we call worldliness. But worldliness that the Bible describes has nothing to do with that. When it says you can't be a friend of the world, it's not talking about the people in the world. It's talking about the spirit in the world, the attitude in the world that's going on around us. I know it's not talking about the people in the world because I look at Jesus. And when Jesus was in the world, Jesus loved the people in the world. He was the friend of sinners, the Bible says. He went to the parties. He ate their foods. He enjoyed their company. Also, we understand that Jesus, the very reason Jesus came into the world was John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The Greek word world there is cosmos. It means the wicked world of people. God loved that world. And he did something about that world. And if, folks, if you're not close to God, you need to know God's done something about you. Jesus came, he died on the cross and rose again so you could be saved, rescued from hell, rescued from yourself and saved to a new life with him. An abundant life, living relationship with God. God loves the world. So it's not talking about the world in terms of the people in the world. When it's talking about you, you've, you're an adulterous people, you've got friendship with the world. It's talking about friendship with the attitudes that are in the world, an embracing of the spirit of the world. That's what it's talking about. You see, the, James uses the word, you adulterous people. That's strong language. Well, why adulterous? Well, because we've abandoned our first love, God, and we've become very fond of the stuff of the world, my precious. It's become the thing that we love, and God says, it's adultery of the worst kinds. You've become idolaters. You start worshiping things and stuff and attitudes and emotion rather than the God who gave you all the good things. You worship the creation rather than the creator. You see, we, we, we assume idolatry means you carve some idol and you worship in some pagan temple before a little bit of stick, right? That's what we think idolatry is, and we say, well, that was primitive. Well, this is what the Bible describes as, as idolatry, Colossians 3, 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What you've done is, idolatry is anything that gets your attention, gets your devotion, gets your fondness more than God. You were designed to serve God. So what happens is we become a friend of the world. And the Bible says when we are, have friendship towards the world, it's hatred towards God. That's, we're actually spitting in God's face. We're saying, you're not good enough. We're going to do it our way. We don't need God. We're going to be God ourselves. We're going to make this happen ourselves with our own agenda, with our own attitudes. And it's hatred towards God. And on the flip side, James also says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God's. 
And that's God towards you. God has become your enemy because you've sided in an adulterous way with the world and the stuff the world has to offer rather than a relationship with God. So the problem is selfish motives, pride. I can do it without God. I, can, I'm, I am my own God. I'm going to get things my way rather than God's way. Now James gives us a solution to this. And the solution is humility, prayer, and repentance. James 4.6 says, but he gives us more grace. That's why the scripture says, listen to this verse, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love that verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you know, God actively does one of two things based on that verse. He's either actively opposing you because you're proud, or he's actively giving grace your direction because you're humble. You know, when you see someone and they say, man, the favor of God is all over that person's life. What you're saying, you're saying God's grace has been poured out in that person's life. And it's not just seen in a temperament, it's seen in everything in their life. The grace of God. God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Now listen, I've had some people oppose me in the past and sometimes it's tough. If you can have one person opposing, the last person you ever want to oppose you is God. If God's opposing you, you're stuffed. You can't mess with God. He will win. God will oppose the proud. That means some of you here who are proud, God's opposing you. No, he's not. I'm not proud. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I am not proud. Listen to yourself. How could you say this? Doesn't sound like humility to me. God is opposed to you, you proud person. God is opposed to you. You want to get on the grace side of God, you need to humble yourself before God. And when you're humble, then God's grace is towards you, just as actively as God opposes you when you're proud. Powerful verse. You see, why is it when you look out, right, and you see some people and they're, they're blowing it lots, they're making tons of mistakes, okay? Sin everywhere. Like Gareth at the bookstall, just for an example, right? Give us a wave, Gareth. Sometimes you've got to visualize what we're talking about here, right? So Gareth, for example, someone who blows all the time. You think, man, how? And then you look at the guy's life and you think, the favor of God's on him. That doesn't seem fair. Okay? And then you get someone who looks pure. Um, Okay, for an example. Okay. Can't illustrate that one so easily. So you get Gareth... And you've got someone who's looking pure, and yet there's not much blessing. And you think, well, God, what? that doesn't seem fair. You've got sinner Gareth, and the person who's doing their best to live pure. Why is there more blessing in sinner Gareth's life? I'll tell you why. Because sinner Gareth gets on his knees and says, God, I blew it. Stupid me. Stupid me. God, forgive me. You do? Thanks, God. Favor. Grace of God. But then pure appearance, someone not in this room. (laughs) Oh, God must bless me because I'm so good. Now, the person who lives pure could also be humble and also be blessed. That's the best way, okay? So forget the Gareth illustration. You want to be the pure person who's living with humility. But you understand the grace of God is there where there's true humility. Not where there's perfection, but where there's humility. And some people wonder, well, Peter, I have blown it so often. Honestly, I wonder if God's grace has run out. I wonder if I've fallen from grace. I've read some verses in the Bible, Peter, that tell me that I can push it one bit too far and then I'm going to be rejected eternally. I've read verses like that and it freaks me. How do I know that I'm still in the grace of God? God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. For me, folks, that verse is a summary verse. It's a summary verse. In my devotions yesterday morning, I read in Psalms, it says, if I had 
cherished sin in my heart, he would not have heard my prayer. How does, how does God blank you? You become proud. You see, it's nothing to do with whether you blow it or not, or how many times you blow it, or the extremity to whether you blow it or not. I mean, that's all bad. I'm not excusing any of that. But it's everything to do with humility. It's everything to do with humility before God. You're humble that you are in the grace of God. If, now, woe to the person who's blown it and says, well, it wasn't that bad. Pride. Blessing in the person who says, thank you, God. Walks in humility. Humility will result in submission, James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So humility before God will result in submission to God. You're actually born to submit to God. You weren't born to be your own God. You were born to submit to God. You were born to live under his leadership. And as a result, you become a great leader in life. As you're under his authority, you're endowed with authority. But you need to be under his authority. You see, being a Christian isn't just, oh yeah, I believe in God. Being a Christian is, you're under his authority. And let me say, being under his authority isn't just saying Jesus is Lord. Being under his authority is actively allowing your life to come under his lordship. So what he says goes. Oh, Peter, I'm on board with that. It's cool. Well, what about tithing? Well, just don't talk about that. Well, what about the way you are as a husband? Don't go there. Jesus is Lord. Well, if Jesus is Lord, he'll do what he says. Well, why are you only turn up at church once a month? Or once every three months? Well, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter if I come to church. No, no, Je- Jesus, who wrote the Bible, says don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Oh no, Peter, don't make it specific. Don't pin me down on this. Jesus is Lord. No, it's an easy thing to say. And I, I understand we're all on a journey. But what I would say is that if Jesus is Lord, then we've got to allow him access to every room of our life. Not that room, Lord, that's mine. No, no, is he Lord? Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Where did the devil come into this? You know, there's no mention of him up till now. Why mention the devil here? How did the devil get even involved in this whole... I mean, I didn't even know he was here that he he even needed to flee. And here's the thing. The devil doesn't get involved in your life purely because you've been in a seance or you've done the Ouija boards or got involved in the horrible scopes or you've seen a medium or even an extra large. Now, these things will open up the way, mark my words, these things do open up the way to satanic influence in your life in a big way, so avoid them. But the devil gets involved in your life, not just because of those overtly satanic things, but also because, and actually primarily because, of worldly attitudes that we have harbored. Remember last week, we said where envy, bitter envy and selfish ambition are, there is every evil thing, you know? The devil moves in and partners alongside our attitudes if we give him those attitudes to work with in the first place. So our world in this causes Satan's involvement. So what we do is, how, what's the response? God, forgive me. Humble yourself, submit to God. And when you've submitted to God, then Satan will run a mile because he can't bear the presence of God in your life. You see, Satan's involvement with Adam and Eve, as soon as the attitude crept in, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to do life my way. I'm going to get what I want my way. Adam and Eve, it involves Satan and the human race. And whereas previous to that, Satan was distant from the human race. We see David and Bathsheba with the murder of Uriah and the adultery. Satan actually, it opened up the way for devastation. Many devastations. Negative things happening through the opening of the negative attitude David has. I'm going to make this happen my way rather than doing it God's way. Adolf Hitler undoubtedly had the partnership and involvement of Satan and demonic forces alongside his negative attitudes, being his own God, making things happen his way. So submit to God. Submit to God. You know what? If you're not submitting to God, this is why your life isn't 
as you want it to be. You were born to submit to God. You're born to live for him, not for self. Then the Bible goes on in verse 8, it says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail, and change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That's kind of strong words. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. It's kind of old school. You know, you expect the guy in the, to be up in the soapbox. Right? Giving it the, everything. But it, it, it's interesting. Who's James writing to here? Christians. Right? He's not doing an evangelistic sermon to a crowd of heathens. He's writing to believers. Do you know what? I believe repentance isn't just something you do when you become a believer. It's a thing you do constantly throughout your life as a believer. Constantly. And what James, I mean, it's, it's pretty hardcore. It says, grieve, mourn, and wail. It's the next time you blow it. <laughs> Sackcloth and ashes, the whole deal. You've got to go for it. And we will know you've sinned because we'll, there'll be ash all over you and you'll be a mess. You'll be walking through this. You'll be a mess. And you know, what, what's James saying? Well, some people, what they do is they, they, they blow it and they say, God, forgive me. All right, thanks, God. And it's kind of flippant. But James is saying, do you realize how bad sin is? Your sin put Jesus on the cross. My sin caused my Savior to suffer a horrendous death. How does God feel about sin? Look at the extremity of the wrath of God poured out on the Savior. Do you think God minds sin? Of course he does. God doesn't forgive you for your sin because, listen, it wasn't that bad. That's not, that's not how God forgives you for the sin. He says, it was horrendous, but I've paid a huge price for you. Be forgiven. So how do you respond when you blow it? Total sincerity. That's what James is saying. Total sincerity. Now, you might be completely sincere, and in a moment, your prayer is instantly answered and you're forgiven, just as quick as that. But that doesn't mean you get flippant about it. So we see God's forgiveness and God's grace. How do you get things God's way? I mean, we talked about getting things our own way, but acting like God and I'm going to get things my way. But how do you actually get things God's way? Listen to this verse. Psalm 37 verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord's and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, read that with me. One, two, three. Delight yourself in the Lord's and he will give you the desires of your heart. God is a great God, and he gives you things. God's not, James isn't, the issue James has isn't that they shouldn't have things and get things. The issue is, you want things, and you ask God for them, but you have got impure motives for getting them. But on the flip side, if your life is submitted to God, and you're saying, God, I'm going to walk humbly before you, and you delight in God, according to the Bible, the promise for you is, He will give you the desires of your heart. Let me share a couple of testimonies with you. I used to work in an architect's office up until 2003. That was my training. And we started the church while I was working full-time in the office. It was a great experience, really great place to work. One of the things you do as an architect is you're designing buildings. And and once you've designed the buildings, you start having to specify the materials that are going to be used in the building. And on one particular day, I I can't remember what building I was doing, but I was doing a kitchen in this building. And I was choosing the tiles that would go on the floor. So I went down to the basement of the office, because in the basement there's a library, and I got the tile catalogue off the shelf, and I was looking through the tile catalogue, figuring out what, what tone of tiles and what type of tiles I was going to use for the particular building I was working on at the time. Anyway, I opened it up, and there on the front page was the picture of the tile showroom. And I thought, wow, look at that. And it was a really cool reception, very minimalist, nice, rece- right, nice desk, nice table, and very trendy, cool chrome and leather seats. I thought, I would love some seats like that. I just thought that. Well, let me tell you what happened next. I, I, I worked at Murray, House, Murray Place, sorry, in Newtown. And I would, lived in Haymarket, that's where we started the church. And I took a diagonal route through town. I liked the kind of back lanes and kind of walking through Charlotte Square and through the back and then down the back of Habitat and down little streets and all that and then come out at, at, at uh, Haymarket. On the way there, I was down the back of Habitat and I came out by the back of Charlie Muller's hairdressers. 
That day, Charlie Miller's hairdressers had seven, sorry, five broken original Matteo Grazzi chrome and leather chairs. And they were getting rid of them. So I went in and said, do you need them? I said, no, you can have them. So I walked home that day <laughs> with five chrome, and I actually went and got my car. Five chrome and leather chairs. This is one of them. This is an original Matteo Grassi. See if you turn around here. See if you look here. Just there. Can you all see that? Embossed, it says Matteo Grassi. Now, you get lots of copies of this, but this is the real McCoy. This is thick hide. This is the thing. And do you know what? That day in, that off, in the office, I'd just seen the tile catalog and I thought, oh, I'd love a set of chairs like that. Honestly, I didn't even pray. I thought, I'd love a set of chairs like that. Cool, cool as. Now, for some of you, you don't get excited about this because you've got bad taste. <laughs> That's all right. We're all on a journey, you know what I'm saying? God, God will reveal. Let me tell you about Beth. Beth was cycling through town on the bike that she'd been given. But the bike she'd been given was way too small. And she was cycling along that particular day, down Leith Walk to the office. And uh, she, she was thinking to herself, this bike's tiny, I wish I had a bigger bike. And she pulled up at the lights near the foot of the walk in Leith. And she stopped at the lights, bike cyclists incidentally should stop at red lights, just as we point there. God might speak to some of you on that. Stopped at the lights. And there she stopped at the lights. There's a guy standing on the pavement. He says, your bike looks quite small for you. My girlfriend is really little, but she's got a huge bike. Would you want to swap bikes with her? I mean, how random is that? True story. So Beth swapped bikes. Got a bigger bike. It's nuts. Right, me and Angie, we're living in a house. I know that's usual. But let me tell you how we got this house. Our first date... Um, I took Angie out. We were in the up in the hills near Glasgow, and you know, you know, as as someone who's trained to be an architect, I was dreaming of kind of living in a converted barn, and you know, I could I could describe it to her. And then she said, "This is amazing. You have to come and see." And she took me back to her flat afterwards, and she showed me a doodle she'd done. Now she was studying business, so she didn't she she wasn't the best of drawers, but she. <laughs> I'm trying to be polite here. She drew a doodle of the house that she wanted to live in when she was, you know, settled down. And she drew what I described. Anyway, working in the architect's office, I became aware, we, we moved to Shandon by this point, and we, I was aware of a little barn up in Merkison, and it was a beautiful location, and I thought, that could be the one. Because I was always looking for this barn that we could buy and refurbish. That could be the one. And in fact, what was more, I knew the developer or, or I knew through someone, the developer who had bought the whole plot and I thought I've got an opportunity that's not a market opportunity, it's an opportunity ahead of the market, I can get my foot in the door, I can make it happen. I can make it happen my way. But I heard God speak to me and I heard God clear as a bell say, and I was all pumped and all excited, I, I could see it, a lovely area and I was about to make the contact and God said, don't touch it. I thought, no, God. Oh man. God said, don't touch it. So I said, okay, God. Within two weeks, Angie's parents came, and came around to see us and they said, well, we just want to let you know something. Uh, we're actually going to move house. I thought, you're joking. It's totally out of the blue. They hadn't been talking about it. We're looking at moving house. And they pulled pull out a schedule of a house they were going to buy. And you know, most people downscale when they get older. It went huge, right? They went for this massive place. And they showed us and we're thinking, that's amazing. Hollywood Abbey, this is incredible, great choice. <laughs> and then on the back page, it had a little picture of a coach house, little old converted stables. And I thought, wow, and it jumped out, and I thought, man. Anyway, we didn't, it was like an Asda deal, you got this house and you got the stables with it. Incredible, I mean, the, the, anyway, we didn't say anything because we didn't put any pressure on, but they, they bought the house and this other house came with it, and they came to us and said, do you know what, we would like you to live there how would you fancy paying as much as you can and that can be yours? I said, okay. <laughs> she says, you know what? We're living in our dream, but two weeks before that, God told me not to touch what I thought was the ideal. But I'm living in my dream. Folks, I'm not pursuing my agenda. As best I can, and I don't always get it right, I'm under his lordship. I believe you delight yourself in the Lord and he gives you the desires of your heart. 
You can obtain God's way. I don't have stuff for the sake of me. These chairs are so you can sit in it when you come and visit me for pastoral appointments. My house is there for entertainment and to raise up children. Beth's bike is to get her to work. God will bless you. Second way we act as God is this. We act as judge over others. Verses 11 and 12. Brothers, do not slander one another. You hear that? Do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting on judgment over it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, one who is able to both save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We act as judges, we're acting like God. God ultimately is the judge. James here makes it clear. You see, I have to say, and I'll show you in a moment, there are times where judging is right. But there are many times when judging is wrong, and I'll explain the difference. The Bible teaches that judging is wrong when you yourself are struggling with the same issue. It's hypocrisy. You've got a big issue, and yet you're seeing everyone else's issues. Romans 2.3 says, "So so, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment... On them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? You see, typically as human beings, our tendency is to judge others in the areas that we dislike ourselves in. Right? Sometimes we get heated about the things in other people's lives that are actually, without we wouldn't admit this, but it's actually the biggest issue in our lives. The things that hack us off most around us are often the things that we're struggling the most with in our lives. You can, you can analyze that as you will. It, it is also a comfort for us. When, if we can point out the, fa- the faults in someone else's life, it somehow gives us comfort because we think, oh, I'm not so bad. And it's got this kind of negative comfort it brings. As, as the angel's saying is, you know, when you're pointing a finger at them, there's three fingers pointing back at you. The Bible says, how can you judge when you yourself are doing the same things? This is what Jesus taught, and you know this. In Matthew 7, the first bit says this, do not judge, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You hear lots of people saying that. Judge not, lest you be judged. Who's heard that? Right? And that's, that's... people telling us that we can't share our opinions. Typically, that's what they say. Judge not, least you be judged. So you you can't share your opinions with anyone. That's kind of what the inference is. But Jesus wasn't just saying that. Now, he said that. But he goes on to explain good and bad judgment because there's a difference. This is what he goes on to say. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? That was Jesus being funny. That's really cool. In the Hebrew uh, language and the Hebrew custom, it was the case that, that people, when they were using humor, they would often use exaggeration to make a humorous point. So Jesus was making a major exaggeration. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, but you yourself, you've got a tree trunk in your eye? You know? And that's a funny point. <laughs> How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when at the same time there's a plank in your own eye? It's not going to work. You hypocrites, that's the problem. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus didn't say you can't remove specks from people's eyes. He just says get the plank out of your own eye first. You see, wrong judgment is hypocritical judgment. The Bible doesn't say do not judge, period. The Bible says do not judge hypocritically. And there's a big difference. James is saying, at the beginning of the bit we read about judgment, he says, do not slander one another, do not speak against one another in your judgment. It's not the kind of judgment, you see a speck in your brother's eye and you're genuinely concerned for your brother and you want to get the speck out of his eye. That's love. That's good. But wrong kind of judgment is, speck in your eye. It's slander. It's against the person. And that's what the Bible's talking about here. We act as judges. 
rather than loving people. Before you judge and criticize others, you must walk a mile in their shoes. Because when you've walked a mile in their shoes, you're a mile away from them and you've got their shoes. Thirdly, we make our own plans without involving God. This is another way we act as God's. We make our own plans without involving God. Verses 13 to 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows what he ought to do and does not do it, sins. You know, there's nothing wrong, let me say this before I say what James is saying here. There is biblically nothing wrong with planning, with goal setting, with thinking ahead. That's not what James is saying. I'll come to what James is saying in a moment. You see, I know there's nothing wrong with planning because there's many great people in the Bible who plans. Moses plans. Moses plans the tabernacle. But he planned under God's direction. David, King David, he planned the construction of the temple that his son would build. He made plans for it. He made preparations for it. But he did it under God's direction. Jesus Christ in his three-year ministry, his three-year ministry was, was thoroughly planned out. He planned it in line with the will of God. Planned it down to the details. Riding into the city in a donkey. He knew exactly where the donkey was going to come from, what day it had to be on. He planned the Last Supper and many other details in Jesus' life. You see, he was totally working to a plan. And I, I believe that throughout the Bible we see planning as a godly thing. But here's, here's, the big, here's a good summary verse. Proverbs 16, 3. It says, commit to the Commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. James is talking about people planning with no reference to God. You know, you're acting as God yourself. You make your own plans. I'm my own man. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to make it happen. But the Bible here isn't criticizing planning. It's criticizing planning without God. The Bible says, commit to the Lord, whatever you do, and your plans will succeed. In the West, we've got a kind of gung-ho, make-happen, proactive approach to life. And I have to say, I'm a bit like that. And many of you are. And people who are successful are like that. There's actually nothing wrong with that as long as you do it with humility and involving God. It's good to be proactive. It's good to be big thinking. You know, the way we bought this building here and the way we bought our building across town in Leith, it was so supernatural the sequence of events leading up to the purchases. And do you know what was crystal clear? Before we went for it, with everything we had, before we went for it, we got God's green light without a shadow of a doubt. We knew God had called us to buy this building and our lease building. The lease building seats 230, this building seats 720 with an overflow of another 200 in the cafe if we need to. Uh, I reckon God gives us that many seats to fill them. And then we're going to have four services, which will give us 1,800 seats to fill them. But that's just an aside. God gave us these buildings. But when we had the green light from God, what did we do? We went for it gung-ho. We gave it everything we had. We were strategic. We raised money. We built the places. We tried to do everything we can to make it happen. Were we doing it apart from God? No way. We'd got his green light first. So James is not criticizing people who are planning. He's criticizing people who are planning with no reference whatsoever to God. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, listen. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. <clears throat> plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a hope and a future. Famous verse, true. It reveals the heart of God for his people. You know what, I, the reason I believe many people do not involve God in their plans is because we've got this Scottish mentality that surely God wouldn't want to bless me. That we misunderstand God. 
either we don't think he would want to bless us, or we assume that if God did have a plan for our lives, it would be the last thing we'd want. Right, for example, I became a believer when I was 15. My life changed then. But leading up to that, I went to church and I saw Christians. This was one of the reasons I didn't want to become a Christian. I looked at them and I thought, I see I had all these exciting thoughts. I had exciting dreams. I wanted to make things happen. I wanted to live an exciting life. And I looked around me at the church I was in and the people who were around me, who were lovely people, but they were very dull. They weren't making a big impact with their life. They weren't living their dreams. They were surviving and attending church. And I thought, man, if I yield my life to you, God, then will I become a Christian? No. And then the other people have another set of problems is that if I yield my life to God, then God's bound to ask me to go to the very last place on earth that I would ever want to go. He's going to send me to some remote mission station where everyone will want to kill me and where there'll be midges that eat me and where I'll die of a foul disease for the sake of the Lord, you know. And many of you have actually, even in your courage, have said, okay, then I'll become a Christian. Okay, Lord. You know, just amazing at heart. Wow. But I've got good news for you. God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. God will call some of you to go to remote mission statements. But for you, you, you don't want to be anywhere else. In your heart, you have such a passion for that remote mission station that that will be heaven for you. Some of you will be called to work with the down and outs and working in prisons, and that's heaven for you. Others of you will be called to work among the rich and the famous, and that's heaven for you. Others of you will be called to work in education, and that's the most exciting thing for you. I believe when God calls you, he also forms in you desires and passions And do you know what else? God isn't thick, right? That's a truth. God doesn't give you all these gifts and talents and then never give you an opportunity to live a life that involves those gifts and talents. Right? I know I'll equip them amazingly to be very mathematical, to be very analytical in their thinking, very logical in their processes. But I want you to become a musician. Right, man, it would be the worst musician in the world ever. And if you're that person in the bands, change teams. (laughs) You know, God wouldn't wire you with all these gifts and talents and then call you to be something entirely different. Surely God is wise. Surely God equips you for the calling that he wants you to live. Surely God's put in you certain things. Even the things that others perceive as rough edges actually might just be unperfected abilities from God, passions from God that just need a phenomenal outworking. God has got good plans. And I have to say, if you yield your entire future to him, he will call you to live a great life. Now for you, it will look different to the person next to you. But your life will be equipped in line with his calling for you. Stephen Covey said this, when you engage in a work that taps your talent and fuels your passion, and it rises out of a great need in the world that you feel drawn to by conscience to meet, Therein lies your voice, your calling, your soul's code. I believe God has got good plans. Many times the reason we play God when it comes to our plans in life is because we don't trust God's plans. Because we aren't willing to commit our way to the Lord because we think if we give God anything, he's going to do it the way we don't want it to do it. But you're so totally mistaken. Your heavenly father has got great plans. And if you only knew how bang on line with your deepest desires they are you would get on board straight away you know James also says in verse 14 why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow what is your life you're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes now some of you have come from from Africa and could never understand this verse but now you're in Scotland and you understand the mist appears. The only confusion you have is it appears for a long time. <laughs> but here we have it. 
your life is like that. Go. Literally, you don't know how long your life's going to be. You're not in control. You're not God's. That truth keeps you humble. It stops you arrogantly saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live this long. I'm going to make this happen. Now, you might say, God, with God's help, these things are going to happen. You can have very robust and big dreams. But in your heart, you've committed your way to the Lord. Magazine publisher J.I. Rodale said, he was a zealous, zealous advocate of his own health foods. And he claimed when he was age 72 that he would live to 100 years old. That same week, his prediction was published in the New York Times. Following that publication, he was being interviewed in a television program. And again, he claimed on that television program that as a 72-year-old, his bones were as strong as ever. And he would live to 100. Moments after making that boast, he died of a heart attack. Don't buy his health food. You don't know how long your life's going to be. Psalm 31, 14 to 15 says, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you're my God. My times are in your hands. Now, you don't need to go around all the time saying, God willing, God willing, if the Lord wills. That could become a little bit religious. But in your heart, you're always saying that. In your heart, you're always saying, God willing. You can make a bold declaration of what you long to do in the future. But in your heart, you say, God willing. Because you know, your times are in his hands. Paul, the apostle, stands up in front of a great crowd, a very unreligious crowd in the Areopagus in Athens. And there he makes one of the most excellent messages. It's a great message, Acts 17. And he makes this statement in Acts 17, 28. He makes this statement to philosophers, to unreligious people, to idol worshippers, people who were literally worshipping carved stone idols. This is the statement he makes to people who are not following God. He says to them, in him we live, move, and have our being. In God you live, move, and have your being. And in him we live, move, and have a being. Everyone on this planet, not just religious people, not just people who believe in God's. Richard Dawkins, in God, you live, move, and have your being. In the God you don't acknowledge, Richard Dawkins, he's the very reason you're alive and had the ability to even reason in the first place. Richard Dawkins, in God, you live, move, and have your being. We exist. We have a heartbeat. We have a breath. Because God chose in this moment that you would live. So live a life with great respect to God. We play gods by trying to get things our way. We play gods by acting judge wrongly, hatefully over others. And we play gods by making plans without consultation to God. But the reality is our life is short. We must make every moment count in gods. We are stewards of life, not owners. Father God, you are God. We acknowledge you as God. And God, we want to respond to you as the source of our life, as the source of our abilities, as the source of things that we will achieve in life. God, I pray that as a church, we will not be a church that achieves anything without you. I pray, God, we will be a church that doesn't make any plan without your information, without your direction. I pray, God, that we will be a church that never judges and acts like God with hypocrisy. God, I pray that we would be people who are humble, truly humble, not falsely humble, but truly humble, and truly submitted to God. Thank you, God, that you oppose the proud, but you do give great grace to the humble. And I pray, God, that we would be a church that has utter humility at the core of our being. And as a result, the grace and the favor of God will be all over the church. Okay, take a moment to respond. Just before God, if there's things that you specifically feel stirred by, challenged by, provoked by, then respond to God just now. Tell him what you're going to do about it.
God, you are God. Holy Spirit, move among us, I pray. As we submit our lives to you afresh, as we humble ourselves before you, God, I pray your grace would be upon our lives and upon the church. Great grace. In Jesus' name. Okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity just now. If you are far from God, if you don't know God, if you know that you are not saved, you're in your sins and you know that your sins will take you to a lost eternity. The great, incredibly great news is that God loves you and he has done so much for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take your sins, to wipe them away, to give you God's forgiveness. Three days later, he conquered death. He rose from the grave so that you also could conquer death and have an eternal life. Why not today? You've been living for yourself. Why not today make a choice that from here on in, I'm going to live for God. I'm not going to make myself God. I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to accept Jesus Christ. I'm going to make him Lord of my life. If that's you, then that would be the best decision you could ever make. I mean, ever. So I invite you just now, if that's you, while everyone's eyes are closed, I invite you to pray this prayer with me just now. Just repeat it after me quietly under your breath. Let this be your own prayer of dedication to him. Line after, line after line, just repeat this after me. Pray, dear God in heaven, I acknowledge that you are God. And I acknowledge that I've been living as if you weren't. Jesus, thank you for dying for me in the cross. I fully acknowledge that I needed that to happen for me. I am an utter sinner. And I need you to be my saviour. Cleanse and forgive me, I pray. Thank you. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the dead on the third day. And I'm fully convinced you're alive right now. Jesus, I make you Lord of my life from now on until one day I meet you face to face. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out by your Spirit. Amen. Keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that, if anyone made that commitment just there, I would love the privilege of praying for you and asking God to bless you as you embark on this new life with him. In order to know who I'm praying for, I'm just going to ask you to do a very simple thing. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way, just where you are. If you prayed that prayer, could you let me know you did that by quickly raising your hands and then putting it down again? Anyone like that? Thank you. Anyone else? Quickly put your hand up. Thank you. Anyone else? Thanks. Anyone else? Just put your hand up before I pray. Get up clearly so I can see it. Anyone else? God, I pray for these three precious people. Today, God, they have made a decision. They have prayed a prayer. And I know you heard them. God, I know in this moment, in this holy moment, they have been forgiven by God as they've asked for forgiveness. And God, as they've truly and sincerely made you Lord of their lives, I believe, Lord, that you truly are the Lord now. I pray you'd fill them with the power of your spirit. Let them in this moment know God's total acceptance and forgiveness. And I pray they will walk from this day forward, serving you, living for you, and honoring you with their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to end this meeting just by worshipping God.